August the 21st, 2016, lecture discussion number 251 on the book of Romans and all other passages pertinent that are yet to be discovered as such. Once again, for the sake of the faithful, vast internet audience, I disacknowledge any accountability for the accuracy of the date or the numerical assignment to the lecture. And I, I might add, for those who don't follow along on MeTube, I do not have any involvement whatsoever in the production of these videos. So you cannot blame me. Certainly not the blurbed comments that characterize the presentations. Those are the definitive example of the incarcerated seizing control of the sanitarium here. I don't have anything to do with it. Do not blame me. Do not send me mail blaming me. Okay, do it. It's kind of, kind of amusing. That's similar, by the way, the chaos here is similar to the situation downstairs with the Sunday school. This is going to be a little bit of a mess today, uh, just because of the nature of where I am. We ended up last Sunday scattered asunder, which is according to plan, as I define the word plan. To uh, briefly and incompletely summarize, it's impossible for me to completely summarize, but I'll try to do it incompletely as best I can. We ventured into the purpose of the Mosaic Law last week. God's intention, the Christ-centric aspect of the 613 laws. If you were to count, and you don't need to because uh, the Jewish-Israeli nation has done it uh, for you, there are 613 laws, as well as the ten words. You might call them the Ten Commandments. They do not. They call them the ten words. I don't know if I said this during the lecture last week. I know I probably did in the post game. There is a strong position that the ten commandments or the ten words is in fact ten headings. Or if you will, ten chapters. So you will have ten commandments, but each one of those commandments is just the heading or the title to all of the scripture that fits underneath it. So you will be able to find all of the scripture that is, for example, applicable to the Sabbath, and it fits under, you shall keep the Sabbath holy. Does that make sense? Very strong position there. We'll delve into it as time goes by. But understand, it's, uh, it is certainly uh, difficult to defeat it. I will put both positions on as we go along. Obviously, the law, the 613 or the 10 words, cannot, does not save. None are saved by the law. If it is your hope that you will be saved by the law, you are hopeless and miserably deluded, and it is love to tell you so. You will not be saved by something you do that is a physical property. You will be saved by a mental property, or if you will, a spiritual property. There is a difference between the physical and the spiritual. You as a human being, uh, let me do this again, you are two components. Ah, I can't spell when I'm writing. Substance dualism. That is how God, how the Bible says you are designed as a human being. You have a physical component and you have a non-physical component. The difference is spatial extendedness. Does that make sense? Say no. Don't ever raise your hand here, whatever you do. Spatial extendedness says this. This uh, Coke can that I'm trying to get uh, sponsored by Coca-Cola by continually showing them that I've used their product. That is there. You know where it is. It has location. And it has weight. It has volume. It has size. It has shape. That makes it a physical property. Your mind... Uh, 
How big is it? How much does it weigh? Where is it located? How much does love weigh? How much does an idea, how much volume does an idea take? So, clearly we have mental and we have physical properties. That's how you're designed. The mental properties control the physical machine, for lack of a better way to say it. That's very elementary, but just understand that. The, the, the ten words, the 613 laws, those have physical implications. God has not designed his salvation to be physical. He has designed it to be belief-based, which is, which is spiritual. Does that make sense? I hope it does. I'll stop saying, does that make sense? I'll go back to by the way. That's the by the way chart. The law does not save, cannot save, save. None are saved by the law. No, not one. Romans 3. That's the truth. Therefore, through the ages, many have written and submitted opinion on the reason God gave 613 laws to Israel. What is the fundamental, the foundational reason he did it? It clearly isn't to save anybody. The law cannot save. And I believe that the primary purpose is obvious. It's apparent. The law was given precisely because it does not save a single person. That's what you have to know. That's why he did it. No one will ever be saved by the law. And the understanding of this immediate underlying principle is necessary in order to correctly navigate all that the law brings. If you go in to studying the law thinking that this is going to lead you to some kind of salvation system, you are doomed to failure. So you have to go into it saying that the purpose of it is to prove to you that it doesn't save anybody. I was very tempted to say, does that make sense? But I didn't. Okay, sort of, I did. If you wish to consolidate this into a simplified format, what we're trying to do, or what we did last week, began last week, is the why of the law. Why did he do it? If the law cannot provide salvation and it was never purposed to deliver salvation, then it becomes manifest. It becomes evident that the law declares that there is only one alternative. There is a true source of salvation and it declares that. And that is its intent. So we study the law to figure out what the true source of salvation is. And that is why God commands Israel to attach blue fringe tassels to their talents. I wish I had a talent. I will try to draw one for you. They go over, it's a head, it goes over the head and it has fringes. Sometimes it's around the waist, depending on how. And God commanded Israel, and there's all kinds of ornate aspects to it. He commanded Israel to put these blue fringes on the talents that every Orthodox Jew wears. They do it today, except they don't have blue anymore. They have lost the dye. But back in Numbers 15, 32 through 41, after the execution of a man gathering wood, I have a man gathering wood, and that man was executed because what he was doing was perverted and profoundly wicked. 
Though the Bible does not say to you what he did, you have to infer it. Here's something about how Jewish people write. They assume that you are intelligent. They will not insult you. So they put enough information so that you can infer the true meaning. Because to lead you to it uh, as an infant is disrespectful to you. So when you read the Bible, understand that that's what they do. They believe that you can figure out why the man gathering wood was executed and why God responds, if you will. That's a humanistic way to say something about God. He does not respond. He's omniscient. But why he responded, in the way we would say it, by making them put blue fringes on the tallets that they wear because of what that man gathering wood was doing. So God responds and commands Israel to do this, and it has something to do with the 613 laws and the ten words or the ten commandments. They actually are able to count the 613 laws in the knot system on those fringes. That's how they understand that to be. So Israel was to remember the blue tassels with the 613 laws, look upon the blue tassels, and forsake the harlotry, important word today, harlotry, that was taking place with the man who is gathering wood. And this relationship unfolds between harlotry and blue tassels. One side I got harlotry, the other side, I have blue tassels. And there is this juxtapositioning between the two. And it has something to do with 613 laws. So, so far, so good? Everybody on the bus? So what I'm saying is that the blue tassels has this intrinsic connection somehow to the foremost intention of why God gave the law which is to prove to the Israel that the law can't save. So that's how we started. That's where we were last week, pretty much. And that, by the way, is why in Luke 8, this woman who is bleeding to death, 12 years she's bleeding to death, rushes through a multitude, how big is a multitude, grabs the blue tallit, or I'm sorry, the blue fringe on, the, on Christ's tallit, and she knows as soon as she grabs it, She's going to stop bleeding to death. That's why she fought through that crowd. And that's why he identified. That's why he stops. He's omniscient God. He obviously knows who touched him. Please say, stop saying that God didn't know who touched him. He knows. He's God. He's omniscient. He can't help but know. So why does he say who touched him? Because he wants everyone there to know this woman grabbed these blue tassels. And that he healed her. And this was an opportunity to go back to Numbers 15 and understand why God gave those tassels in the first place to the nation of Israel. Now God is wearing them in front of the nation of Israel and explaining the mystery of the Numbers 15 blue tassels. Okay, she figured out what a wonderful thought process she had. She figured out the true source of living blood. I have dying blood. My blood is dying. My flesh is dying. It's pretty obvious. I'll show you pictures. It's brutal how it's been going. It's getting worse every day. I play on a 65 and over team. Am I 65? I won't tell you that. Special dispensation was given to me to play on this softball team. 
not because they thought I would be fantastic. Though I am borderline fantastic. Borderline is a relative term. In any event, we sit around old men trying to play softball against young men. And we look at each other and go, wow, what happened to you? And you realize just how fast this aging process is when you see the contrast. Uh, Some of this is not news for many of you here. But it's obvious to me that my flesh is dying and that my blood is dying and that I have temporal blood and the temporal is coming fast. And this woman figured out that this person in this particular talent walking through Israel, that talent fringe was going to reverse her bleeding to death. How did she figure that out? It's incredible what she did. Jesus Christ is God himself in the flesh. Did she know that? And he's the only one that has life blood. The rest of us have death blood. He has eternal blood. The rest of us have temporal or temporary blood. The bleeding to death woman knew that this was the I am. I'll explain how she knew that as we go along. But she knew this is the I am of Exodus 3. And all she had to do was grab that blue fringe. I am is a explain all the time, the reason that Christ calls himself the I Am is because he is always in the present tense. Always. Can't be any place else but the present tense. We have no present tense. It's common for me to say this. Those of you who have heard before, it's going on the internet and we have a visitor. That's why I'm doing it again. Don't be bored. Pretend you're interested. By the way, for the visitor, I will say this. Everyone in this class pretends they know what I'm talking about. Everyone. So you'll see people pretend, and there's, some of them are really good at it. But everyone's pretending. So you're not at all, I, I know, I'm sorry, not everyone. There are a few who aren't. That's just kind of a joke. But uh, uh, you have no present tense. You have a past and you have a future. You do not have a present tense. If you think you have a present tense, I want you to tell me how long it is. Measure it for me. You have none. It's not measurable. So who can call himself the I am and why does he do so? Christ always is in the present tense. He's never anywhere else. Okay, along with that, we also asked some questions last week about time and omniscience. That's what I'm doing right now. Why does the omniscient God, who in order to be omniscient, he must be the creator of time? Is that, I can't say that anymore. There are, there are phrases that I'm not allowed to utter from the internet. I can't utter, by the way. I've got to stop saying, does that make sense? What's the other one that they they hound me for? I'm doing my best. Why does the omniscient God, who just the, the definition of omniscience requires that he be the creator of time, 
has to know everything at all time. And in order to do that, he has to be the one who created time. When was time created? What was before time? Is anything before time? This is a physics discussion, isn't it? But he must be the creator of time. And then he must be in an absolute position of authority over time. That requires omnipotence. So time is subordinate to God. Jesus is God. The Bible actually calls him in Acts Jesus God, which is something everyone should know. Some of your Bibles will have it hyphenated, but that's incorrect. The hyphen's not in the literal. It does not belong there. Take the hyphen out. Why does Jesus God use language that has the appearance of being inside of time. Why does God do that? That was last week. That's from the other Daniel from a couple of weeks ago. Let me put it this way. Why does God say if? We discussed that as much as we could. As though there is an outcome yet to be known by him. Because there is no outcome that he cannot know. He is omniscient. It can't be the case. So why does he use that language? And that led me to ask last week, does omniscience... Um, present hypothetical scenarios? Does God, being omniscient, present a scenario that is hypothetical? Does God offer, put forth a proposal that he knows will not happen, that he knows is untenable? And so, I hope you see the relationship between that question and these laws. He gave them this law. It has no hope of saving anybody does not save. He declares it as something that will never save. Why did he do it? Same reason he asks if. Same reason. So I want you to see this relationship beginning to develop between the ten words and hypothetical scenarios. God's omniscience demands that he knows all things, sees all things simultaneously. Time is constructed for created beings, made things. That's us. God is uncreated. Jesus Christ is uncreated God. Always uncreated God. Jesus Christ is never not God. Have no position where you assume that he is somehow not omniscient, not omnipresent, and not omnipotent, and not omnibenevolent, which means constantly pure good. And that, by the way... The fact that God is not made is why the question, who made God, is infantile thinking. I'm sorry if I offended you with that, if you, if you like that question. This means, of course, not really fake sorry. I'm not sorry I offended you. I'm trying to offend you. If you have the position where you say, you ask yourself, who made God? You have an infantile, elementary, childish question. At its base, that childish question is asking effectively, who made that which is impossible to make? God, by definition, is infinity. You're asking, who made infinity? It's illogical. Infinity can't be made. It is unmakeable, unmade. One of the core attributes of Jesus Christ is his infinity. You have a position that God made Christ. You're saying that infinity made infinity. Don't get your doctrine from Roma Downey. 
Ben-Hur. Christ is infinite, outside of time, creator of time, God manifest in the flesh. That's who he is. Jesus God could not set aside his Godhood as so many denominations adhere or teach. He could not. Infinity is not subject to the arrow of time. When you study physics, you're going to find this statement all the time where time is described as an arrow. That means time has a beginning. Infinity is not subject to time. Thus the question. If you're going to have the position that Jesus Christ, I'll do this really quickly, Jesus Christ is going to get rid of his Godhood, as so many teach you. They're going to say Jesus was, you know, he's up in heaven, and then he decided, oh, I'm going to go down to earth, and I have to empty myself of my Godhood. You'll see that in Philippians uh, 2.7. It's called the kenosis position. So if you have been taught a kenosis view, then you have a mathematical dilemma. If Jesus Christ emptied himself of his godhood, how big is his godhood? It's infinite. How much time does it take to empty infinity? And then if you have the position, well, he temporarily did it, and then he added his, his, his godhood back on later. How much time does it take to add infinity? He's not subject to the arrow of time. You can't reassume infinity inside of time, and you can't empty infinity inside of time. It's, it's doctrinal insanity. I'm sorry if I've offended you again. Anyway, where was I? God frames his words to describe his omniscience alongside our free will. That's what he does. We have been given freedom. He tells us continually, however, that our freedom has limits. I hear this a lot. I hear that people will tell me, isn't it marvelous how Christ, after he uh, was resurrected, could do these amazing things? Before he was resurrected, he defied gravity. What does it take to defy gravity? You have to be an authority over gravity. What is gravity? How, how do I defy it? Because he did. He did it all the time. He demonstrated his authority over gravitational phenomena. That's extraordinary. You might think that passing through into a, a wall or into an, a room that was locked is amazing. It, he has to go through physical material to do that. I will concede to you that that is control and authority over the physical reality. But now compare that to being in authority over gravitational phenomena. He has always been God. So don't, uh, don't ever put any limits on him. Having said that, we need to know that he has given us freedom. God has given us freedom. And he's telling us all the time. And the 613 laws and the 10 words has something to do with our freedom. He says that you, and you need to know that your existence, all of you exist. How do you know that you exist? How do you know who you are? I would ask my kids all the time. I'd say, what's your name? He'd say, Eric. And I'd say, how do you know that? Who told you? Why did you believe them? Some doctor? 
state representative, somebody in the municipal birth records office. Your name could be Fred. Irrespective of what you call yourself, you know you're you. How do you know that? And I know that you know you're you because I know that I know that I'm me. And I can assign my self-awareness to you. That's what I'm doing. And I know you have free will because I know I have free will. But I also know that our free will is limited. Again, I can't stop gravity. You need to know that your existence requires that you have free will. If you do not have free will, if you are an automaton, if you are robotic, if you have no decision-making capacity at all, then you do not have existence. Existence requires free will. They're inseparable, inseverable. Without free will, there is no existence. Where did your existence come from? You have it. Let me ask again this question. What is existence made of? I have a page in there that I intentionally left blank. I want you to consider the limits of your free will and why will is required for existence. That's your homework assignment while you'll be gone for two weeks. I'll cover it again. I cover it a lot. The reason I do is it's important that everyone understand it. Why will is required for existence. Without will, there is no existence. Why that's the case. I could spell it out for you again today, but I won't. It's much more valuable for you to figure it out on your own. Then it will become yours. You can tell your kids why humanity's will includes the ability to reject its creator. That's where we're going. And that brings us back to these laws of those ten words. You have, humanity has the ability to reject its own creator. Why do you have that? I have a wonderful dog. She is not doing well. She's 15. Had her for 11 years. She has... She's being disaffected in her balance. And so she's unable to get her feet underneath her and go up and down stairs. I have to pick her up. She's about 85 pounds, German Shepherd. I have to carry her downstairs now. I know it might be a temporary condition, but I also know she's going to die from death by decay. There's nothing I can do to stop it. It's heartbreaking, and those of you who have deep bonds with your pets understand so I'm carrying her up and down the stairs, and we're hanging in there, and we're going to keep doing it. But I know that she does not have the free will to reject her creator. So her existence, her immortality, is not at stake in the sense of her destination. But we, humanity, we can reject our creator. Why? Why did he design it that way? That's where we've been. That's what we've been doing, trying to expand it so you, uh, you see the totality of it as much as I can. And if you've been reading ahead or reading along, I hope you've been doing both, you have noticed Exodus 25 through 31, which is where we've been, whether or not anyone actually knows that. We've been chasing this blue-purple starlet thing, and I've been focusing just primarily on the blue right now. I'll get to the purple and the scarlet as time goes by. You have to know, of course, that purple is the, um, the combining of, of blue and scarlet, and therefore we see the hypostatic union, or we see the godhood and the humanity of Christ 
contained in the purple. So understand that at least, but we'll get into the scarlet and purple as we go along. But right now, talking about the blue as much as I can. God gives these instructions to Israel at Exodus 25 through 31 to build stuff, to, to make things that have something to do with the 600 and, or something to do with the purpose of the 613 laws. And, and you might remember that in Exodus 25, all of this begins with God saying, I want Israel to come to me willingly, Exodus 25, 1. There's that word again, will. He wants you to come to him by your own free will. He identifies that you have it. If you come to him by your own free will, then it is obvious, is it not, that you can go away from him by your own free will. You have a choice. How much of a choice? Theologians debate that. But note that word, willingly come and give. Consider the source. This is God saying this. Let me read it to you. Then the Lord God spoke to Moses. By the way, where did God speak to Moses? He has a system. Yeah, but he gave him 613 laws. He wrote a lot of stuff, Moses did. A lot of stuff down. The Pentateuch. Where is the Pentateuch that Moses wrote? Can we find it? I think we're going to find it. I think I have a pretty good idea where it is. How come you haven't got it yet? Well, because I don't want to be shot to pieces. That's part of it. But there's a lot of clues as to where the Ark of the Testimony is in the Bible. But not that I could necessarily find it. I think that's divine supernatural leading. I don't have that, but I can narrow it down. It's been found before. I won't be surprised to learn that they found it since. They wouldn't tell me. They would keep it hidden. But God would speak to Moses in a certain place. How loud did he talk? Did Israel hear him? This is a lot of information, a lot of instruction. Was Israel listening during this? But he says, I want Israel to come willingly. Speak to the the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And then he goes on to say what the offering is, what he wants. And he's going to use this offering. He's going to have Israel make things out of it. And a lot of blue in this offering. A lot of gold. God is he, and acacia wood. God, as he repeatedly does, uses the word willingly. Can't emphasize that enough. He wishes for Israel, his children, you, to give willingly with his heart. What are you giving? Most obvious of the obvious questions. Why does God want his children to bring him an offering? Does he need the money? You going to buy a motor home with it? Why does he want an offering? Why does God want an offering? What does God need with an offering? What does God get from this offering? What do we have that God needs? You should answer that really fast. What do we have that God needs? Everyone say nothing. We don't have anything he needs. So why does he want an offering? And hopefully you've figured that out and you've answered everything correctly. God needs nothing. We have nothing to offer God. So he's doing something. He has this instruction. He wants 
Israel. He wants you to apply it to yourself, extend it to yourself, extend it to ourselves. God says to Steve, Steve, I want you to bring me some blue thread as an offer. Can he make his own blue thread? He wants me to bring it. I want some gold. Bring me some gold willingly. Can he make his own gold out of nothing? Yeah. But he wants me in the process. Are you in the process? Why? Willingly. The will of the ones who bring him their offering is of great significance. And again, note that the ones who bring the offering possess a will. Again, where does your free will come from? What is the origin of free will? As you know, that is a poorly framed question. The proper, respectful, and I did it on purpose to make you think I'm an idiot, but the proper, worded, respectful question would be, from whom does free will come? The natural progression to repeat is why. Why do you have it? Why does my German shepherd have it? And she does. She doesn't have the the ability to reject him. She has the ability to reject me, which she has done many, many times if I'm late with the food. Those are the questions that start the blue discussion in Exodus 25, 1 through 12. So then, what is the purpose of the offering? I said that badly also. What does the offering represent? That is also said badly. He wants me to solve why he's giving me laws. And he starts out with an offering. Of blue, of gold, of acacia wood, dolphin skin, goat skin. Bring that to me. People think that he had to do it. I mean, it's so insane. I just don't know what to do. I just cry and weep in my bed alone. Uh, no, okay. On the couch watching TV. That's what I do. But I just can't believe some of the letters I get. They think that God wants this stuff from Israel because Israel has it and God wants it. Uh, I don't know what to say to you. Obviously, he is making them do it willingly. That's the point. And, and they're going, as if I said to you, please bring me a, a very holy, dry, blue erase pen. You should ask, okay, I got one of those. I got one of those. Why do you want it? And why do you want me to give it to you? You're the possessor of all things. You can make them instantly. So clearly, me going to get the dry, blue erase marker, holy as it is, and bringing it to God, that's the point. He wants Israel to bring that blue, purple, and scarlet thread and their gold. Why not silver? He does ask for silver too. They represent something. That's badly said. How should I have said it? All these things represent something. That's badly said. How should I have really said it? They all represent someone. It's all representative. The entire Old Testament is about Jesus God. You don't find him 
you have failed to find anything. So this is expanded and discussed at Genesis 15.8. Abraham asked God at 15.8. God just says, I'm going to give you all of this land and all of this, this nationality, if you will, all of these descendants. And Abraham asked God, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it in Genesis 15.8. And then the Holy Spirit through Paul, and Romans 4.3, Galatians 3.6, and James, and James 2.23, says that's not about land. It's not about descendancy. Abraham says, how shall I know I will inherit it? And Paul and the Holy Spirit through Paul and James says that question by Abraham is about salvation. In other words, Abraham listens to what God says he's going to receive and asks God, how shall I be saved? And he asks it this way, how shall I know that I will be saved? How will I know? Wow, what is knowing? That's a mental property. How big is knowing? How much does knowing weigh? Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit salvation? That's that question that Abraham asked God. Salvation is something that can be known. That can divert me into a discussion on knowing. I almost did it. What does it mean to know? Cognitive thoughts versus self-awareness, right? So today, just know that you have the ability to know. And where did you get that ability to know? What is knowing? What do I know? Genesis 15.9 is one of the great Christ passages in all of the Bible. And it relates directly to why they're bringing this thread and this gold and this stuff. Because God responds to... And by the way, He calls all this stuff you're supposed to bring in, He calls it my offering. No, there are not two R's in offering. My offering. But that's not really what he means. If you think that it is, if you assign possession to it, it's actually revelatory of what the offering represents. And this is where Genesis 15, 9 explains it. God is asked by Abraham. Abraham says to God, how can I know that I am saved, and God responds in Genesis 15:9. He says, "Take me." That's how you can know you're saved. You take me, and you bring me to me. Hopefully, that makes sense. Some translations have "bring me," but "take me," you will find, is the accurate translation of Genesis 15:9. God then continues with the components of the take me. He asks Abraham to construct this offering. A heifer, which is a female cow, or if you will, a flawless, blemishless heifer. A female goat, ram, turtle dove, and a pigeon. He has to cut the heifer in half and cut the goat in half, the ram in half. But he does not cut the turtle dove or the pigeon. That's one of the wonderful mysteries in the Bible. Why doesn't he separate the turtle dove and the pigeon? It has something to do with how you are designed. The point of that is that the heifer, the female goat, the ram, the turtle dove, and the pigeon comprise 
the me of the take me or the Christ of the take Christ. And this pattern resurfaces in Genesis 22. Abraham takes Isaac. Isaac is portraying the offering. He's in his 30s, by the way. I think might set a new record. Uh, he's in his 30s. I believe he was 33 when Abraham took Isaac. He's not a little boy. He's carrying wood. What kind of wood is he carrying, you ask? Isaac is portraying the offering that is Jesus Christ. Abraham is taking Christ up the exact mountain into the exact place where Christ is crucified. Genesis 22, 2. Take now your son, your only son. God could have said, take now me, take me. Isaac is representing me. This is the same as Exodus 25, 1 through 2. I see you're still with us, Carlin. How late are you? Two weeks? One week. So it could happen right now. Do we have any nursing professionals? How fortuitous. Are you going to do more laps or is this it? Okay. If anything starts to happen, don't tell me a thing. Go find somebody that knows what they're doing. Isaac is portraying the offering that is Jesus Christ. Abraham is taking Christ. Take me. It's the same thing that's happening in Exodus 25, 1 through 2. Bring me my offering, or bring me me. And all of this stuff in Exodus 25, all of it, every bit of it is portraying Christ. And do it willingly. Bring me to me willingly. His my offering is himself. He Then as he does, describes the offering that is a portrait of himself. All of it is the same. So as we're shutting it down here, we should reread a little bit here. I don't have time. Let me just fly it at you. Gold, silver, and bronze he wants. That's portraying Christ somehow. Blue, purple, scarlet thread, linen, goat's hair, ramskin, dolphin skin, acacia wood, oil for the light, sweet incense, onyx stones, ephod stones, breastplate, pattern of the tabernacle, all of that, each part, the totality of all of those parts are take me. They're the my offering. They're the Jesus Christ, the Jesus God. Christ is the my offering. Can't emphasize that enough. God doesn't want your stuff. He wants you to bring him. Why? Because his omniscience requires it. This won't work. There's no salvation there. You go to a works-based church, you are in a Christless church in the sense of salvation. He wants you to bring him. Bring me to me. It is a belief-based Grace-based, gift-based, mercy-based salvation system, which we would expect. What does God say about himself? I am what? Spirit. Worship me in spirit. I don't want your stuff. I want your mind. Or your heart, if you will. Don't use that analogy. The heart is a symbol of the mind. Here's some really insight. That what I just rattled off for you is Exodus 25, 1 through 9. So what would Exodus 25, 10 through 22 be? And here's a shock. 
after Exodus 25, 1 through 9, comes Exodus 25, 10. You pay for this. This is big stuff. Exodus 25, 9, followed by Exodus 25, 10. How much do we pay this guy? Not a lot. Actually, 25.10 really is extraordinary. Here's what he says after he asks you to bring these things that are him. He said, and they shall make an ark of acacia wood. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. There's your hypostatic union, right? That is God, the gold, completely entirely over the wood. No wood shows at all. Now apply that to the next movie you see of Christ. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I gave you. That's the ten words. Build an ark. Make sure you put acacia wood. Why acacia wood? Why not pine? How about a hardwood? Maple? Oak? No, we want acacia wood. Why? Cover it so none of it shows. Deity totally in control of the humanity. That's how you know that he was never fearful. He was never unaware. He was never feeling sorry for himself. If you have any position like that, you are what? Wrong. I'm sorry. See this. Go back. Look at it again. Make it consistent with 25.10. Of Exodus. You overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall put into this box, if you will, the ark of the testimony which I will give you. This is the third ark, as you know. The first ark, the ark of Noah, was covered in blood. The word for pitch in Genesis 14 is used for blood, atonement blood. So you can say the ark of Noah constructed and then God covered it with blood atonement, or atonement blood, inside and out. He does the same thing to the Noatic Ark that he does to the Ark of the Testimony. Inside and out with blood. This one, however, was made of gopher wood. Why? And then I have, that's Ark 2, covered inside and out in specific measurements, and we're going to put the ten words inside of it. Now, and one is carried, the Ark of the Testimony, the other has living things. In it. Obviously, the second of the three arcs carried Moses. What's Moses famous for? What do they call Moses incorrectly? They call him the lawgiver. Is he the lawgiver? No, God is the lawgiver. Moses is the conduit of the law. He would be the what? Yes, he would be the, hmm, he would be, say, like the ten words. What's that? Yes. And he's in an ark. I have three arks. I have the ark of Noah. I have the ark of the testimony. I have the ark of Moses. He's put into an ark. It's called the ark of the bulrushes. It's made by, made with bulrushes. What are bulrushes? It's also covered with the exact same word used in the Noatic ark that is blood atonement. So the ark of Moses that has Moses inside of him. Ark's going down the river with Moses and it's covered with atonement blood. The Ark of the Testimony has a mercy seat which is covered in atonement blood on the Day of Atonement. Two of the three are boats. That makes me ask the most 
unambiguous of the unambiguous questions. Is the Ark of the Testimony likewise a boat? Do I have three boats or two boats and one that's not a boat? What did I got? What do you think? Takes your chances. Pays your money. Probably got three boats. The parallels are not mistakable. Certainly God has a powerful spiritual truth intertwined in these three arcs. Safety, protection, containment, a container from protection from judgment or death is a theme. The law is inside, is a theme. The covering of blood, the bulrushes has a, again, a Hebrew root meaning that says, that has this swallow or absorption context. Only the Ark of Noah and the Ark of Moses are called by the name, let me write it here, Tibet. That means box or coffin. The Ark of the Testimony is wrong, which means box. Though some consider that you have three boats and you also have three coffins. We will investigate this soon. As you know, it's called the Ark of the Testament or the Testimony. Testament is a legal term. It requires a testor, a testator, if you will. Testator is somebody like me who looks ahead and says, wow, I don't have much time. I better figure out who gets my gun collection. And so I write a what? A will. I write a testament. Last will and testament. The Ark of the Covenant has the last will and testament of a testator. Who is the testator? He put his will in a box. It will be necessary when this is all done to include Numbers 7, 89, Numbers 17, 10, Hebrews 9, 3 through 4, Deuteronomy 31, 26. Don't worry, audiences here, this is all for the Internet people. Exodus 16, 33 through 34, 1 Kings 8, 9, Revelation 11, 18. We have to talk about Moses, Josiah, Samuel, David, Saul, Solomon, and Jeremiah at the minimum just to figure out what they did with the Ark of the Testament or the testimony, the last will and testament of the testator in order to resolve the mysteries in three arcs, which is good that we only have three. The Ark is called the Ark of the I Am by the Jews. That's the I Am's Ark. Inside of it is his testament. The Ark of God. Feel free to begin this process on your own. I brought up number 789 specifically to tell you that there's a position on it that might uh, uh, concern you. Same with 1 Kings 8 and 9. And 1 Kings 8 and 9 might be problematic if you hold to the position that the golden jar of manna, Moses' book of the law, Aaron's rod and the stone tablets are still inside the ark, which is my position. Some people look at 1 Kings 8 9 and say, well, it doesn't seem to say that. Well, Hebrews 9, 3 through 4 will have to be reconciled. I think I can make the case, which some argue against me. Why would they do that? Do they always lose? Eventually, we're going to expand the man-gathering wood. 
says, I got a man gathering wood. What's the obvious question there? What kind of wood? We know that he's not gathering wood to make a, to roast marshmallows. We know it's an incredibly evil act. After him is the Korah rebellion. Numbers 15 is followed by number 16. Made some more money right there. It's likely that we're going to have to cement all of Numbers 15. Deuteronomy 21:18, which is a rebellious son. Deuteronomy 22:1 through 12. Leviticus 17:1 through 15. Revelation 17:1 through 8. I've been relentlessly trying to bludgeon this subject. So when I say those numbers, you will know what I mean. You will know the man gathering wood was executed. That's Numbers 15, 32 through 41, because of Israel's desire for harlotry. They wanted harlotry. God calls it harlotry. And because of Israel's desires for harlotry, God installs, if you will, want to use that way of talking, it's a human perspective, blue tassels instituted to provide opposition, remembrance, protection. Blue tassels to think humanly are God's method of combating harlotry. So if you're having trouble with paganism, the best thing for you to do is figure out what blue tassels mean. Deuteronomy 21:18 through 21 is the execution of the rebellious son or the rebel. Blue tassels again are brought to Israel after that execution. He describes why we have blue tassels again and says it's a defense or an alternative to what this rebellious son was doing. Leviticus 17:1 through 15 is the blood eater. He is eating blood and he's actually worshiping Satan, the satyr goat, and he's offering sacrifices to the harlot. It actually says harlot, Leviticus 17.7. The Day of Atonement, the Ark of the I Am, Leviticus 16.2, is sprinkled with blood on the mercy seat. Aaron is protected from harm by the cloud of incense. He's wearing blue ephod. He's got a blue, I'm sorry, he's got a breast over his heart, a breastplate that is attached, bound by blue thread. He has a turban and he has a plate also bound by blue thread. So I have the eater of blood on one side on atonement day, worshiping the goat satyr, and that's starkly contrasted with the blue covered Aaron before the Ark of the Testator, the Ark of God. And lastly, Revelation 17, 1 through 8, the great harlot or the great whore riding on the scarlet beast. The great Harlot is arrayed and adorned with purple and scarlet. Has no blue. But she has gold. She has precious stones. She has pearls. She has in her hand a golden cup. It's full of filth. And on her forehead is mystery Babylon the great, the mother of whores and the abomination of the earth. And the great whore is drunk with blood. The great whore is upon the beast that the Apostle John has seen. He has seen it. When did he see it? That's a mystery. Now quickly, upon the forehead of Aaron the high priest is holiness to the Lord. Upon the great whore is mystery Babylon the great, the mother of harlots, the abomination of the earth. So I have two 
competing things. One is harlotry, blood-eating. The other is a priest who has blue everywhere. And one's got a cup of filth. We're going to have to figure out how that compares with the Passover communion cup of wine, the Elijah cup, or the cup of life. And obviously, back we're going to have to go to Gethsemane, as Christ has a cup. What's in his cup? Those things are all set together to help you understand when you find your inclination towards harlotry. How many of you don't raise your hand? How many of you in your life are struggling with a sin problem? Don't raise your hand. We don't want anybody to know. This is church. We pretend to be holy here. No one sins here except you and me. Got it narrowed down. You have an inclination problem, which all of Israel did. They wanted to drink blood and kill goats and call them Satan and worship them. How do you get there? Solution blue tassels. Takes you all the way through the bat. Did I give you a lot of material today? Yes, I did. How many weeks do you have before the test? Test on the 11th. If you don't pass, what does that do? Nothing. Not a thing. We thought about revoking the the, uh, buffet privileges. No one thought that was a good idea. Musicians, wake up and struggle forward if you can. The rest of you have endured it. If you can endure a lecture of this type for that long, what do you win? First place in the buffet line.